Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? That's good. We are continuing our series in the book of Esther, and uh, we're going to jump right into that right now. This weekend, we're thinking about living bravely. What's happened is, uh, if you've not been around here, we're looking at this, this event where uh, a terrible conspiracy was formed against the entire Jewish nation. Uh, Queen Esther was uh, in the palace. Her cousin Mordecai uh, gets to hear about this holocaust that's about to happen and he wants her to take action and live bravely. So that's where we're going this weekend. Uh, let's have a look at Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. Esther 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Zusa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court, Without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Uh, I've been thinking this last week as uh, this sermon is about living bravely. When have there been moments in my life when I was afraid? When was I, when was I called upon to be brave? Uh, I was thinking that for me, uh, there was an episode in my life that happened about 20 years ago when I I was, um, I was called upon to be courageous. At least that was what was supposed to happen. I, I was uh, in Oregon, living in Oregon. We'd just moved to the States. My wife was at a prayer retreat uh, somewhere up in the mountains somewhere. And I had, to, I had to go to collect her 
I had to go to pick her up from the prayer retreat. I'm not quite sure how to say that. I went to get her anyway, which I thought was good. And uh, I'm driving up this, this mountainous road. I want you to get the picture here. Here's the mountain. Here's the road. And here's about 2,000 feet of fresh air. Okay, you got that? Mountain, road, air. Air, mountain, road. There's no, there's, there's no crash barrier as there perhaps should be in a civilized country like this. Just mountain, road, air. And I came around this corner. I got a friend with me and our kids in the back of the car. And I came around this corner and I hit a patch of frozen ice. Most ice is frozen when you think about it. I know, it's, it's a deep message. And uh, I, I hit this patch of ice and our car started to spin. And I, I'm a fairly perceptive individual. I, I sensed that we were moving away from the mountain towards the air. So as we span, it's like everything was in slow motion. And I decided to respond to this situation uh, by doing what comes naturally. Screaming. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I started screaming. The Bible says, whatever you do, do with all your might. So it was kind of loud. And, and then I noticed my friend, he wasn't screaming, he was praying. And, and isn't it interesting how, how we can be so vain, even as we are on the brink of death? Because I'm embarrassed, you know, I'm, not spo- I'm supposed to be the prayer. So I, I, I stopped screaming and I, I started to pray. It's kind of high-pitched. And uh, then we went over the edge of the cliff. Uh, An eyewitness said that three of the four car wheels went over. The back wheel on the right was remaining on solid ground and the car tipped. And it was about at this moment that I thought, (laughs) forget the prayer. Let's just get back into the screaming. You know, that's, that's a lot easier. As I screamed and as my friend prayed, all I can tell you is that suddenly our car was lifted up pushed back onto the road, right into the pathway of an oncoming car, the driver of which stopped her car. She was so stunned, she got out of her car and she came over to us and she said, I don't know whether you realise what just happened. You were gone. You were over the edge of that cliff and now you're alive. And I, and I, I can't exactly remember our reaction. I think we said something like, Hallelujah. Because we Brits, you know, we don't get excited about stuff. God was really good. And I wasn't terribly brave. I was really good at screaming. This story is a story where Esther is given the opportunity to live courageously and bravely. Mordecai sends a message to her. There has been a legal edict issued a year from now. Every Jew will be killed. And now there is great trauma and terror. And Mordecai is saying to Esther, you're the queen. So now you go and talk to your husband and get this thing sorted out. Sounds easy, but not easy at all. The Greek historian Herodotus, he lived 2,500 years ago, and he talks about how many kings would only allow seven nobles to come into their presence without an invitation. It was a a rarefied, reserved kind of atmosphere that they lived in. Uh, Xerxes, his throne room was called the Hall of a Hundred Columns. It was an intimidating place. 
they discovered a relief, a sculpture relief of Xerxes. And, and he looks kind of a, he, looks a, he doesn't look like a happy camper, does he? He looks like a, a mean kind of guy. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that this man Xerxes had axemen uh, just posted around his throne. And he didn't even have to say anything. He didn't, he, he didn't even have to say, off with her head. By simply not extending the royal scepter, the axeman would step in and give you a radical haircut. It would start somewhere around here. And Esther is facing the challenge of being, being brave. Now, now we, we might think, well, what's all of this got to do with us? You know, we're not, gonna, we're not likely in Fort Collins this week to bump into any Persian despots with accompanying axemen. It's a reasonable response. But the truth is, we are all called to live courageously and bravely, living behaviorally in a way that doesn't necessarily conform, saying something that will be unpopular, taking a risk, facing a decision that we've been trying to avoid, doing something sacrificial or costly, deliberately selecting the hard road, how we navigate sickness or even possibly death, responding to crisis, living with character when no one else sees. You see, living courageously, this episode is a long way from where we live. The heartbeat of the lesson from this episode is exactly where we live. So what can we learn from Queen Esther? First thing, if you're following in the bulletin, is that bravery is about actions, not feelings. Bravery is about actions, not feelings. The power of decisiveness. Look at verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. Get this, everyone. Mordecai's outside making a fuss. And he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, which will immediately identify him as a Jew. And he's making a fuss outside the palace. And it says here in verse 4 that Esther was in great distress. The Hebrew word there means to writhe in fear. Have you ever been so utterly afraid that physiologically you felt nauseous? There was a reaction. That's what goes on here with Esther. She is terrified and that encourages me. Because you see, bravery is not about living with the absence of fear. Bravery is about living in the midst of fear Whatever you feel like, making the right decisions. This woman, her husband was unapproachable. The axemen are there. She's a woman living in a culture where women were considered to be expendable. The king hadn't called her, she says, for 30 days. By the way, that doesn't mean he hadn't called her. You know, the iPhone hadn't rang. Now, possibly she is out of favor. She has not been... Summoned, and she's going to fast for three days, so she's not going to look great when finally she goes in to see a very superficial king. But she says, If I perish, then I perish. Bravery is not just going with the flow of our feelings, it might be that right now, 
we are being challenged to do something that we really don't feel like doing. Bravery is about the actions that we take, whatever those feelings are. Secondly, secondly, brave people are developed, not born. They're developed and not born. The pathway of lifelong discipleship. Look at uh, that verse there, verse 4. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Many commentators say that when Esther sent out some clothing to Mordecai, here's what she was doing. She was saying, would you quit making a fuss? Would you get rid of the repentance fancy dress here? And would you put some normal clothing on and let's just... Let's just get on with our lives. Her reaction wasn't immediately terribly noble. And, and, and then this Mordecai guy, he's kind of sneaky. Just, have you noticed this? Her servant comes out. No one knows that she's a Jew. And then Mordecai says to her servant, would you tell the queen to go and defend her people? Uh-oh. Cover is broken. Double agent revealed. Cat out of bag. Where did we get that phrase from? The truth is out. This guy, is, I was thinking he was nudging her. He's, not, he's nudging her all right. And then she sends a response back that's slightly sarcastic. We haven't got time to investigate that. And then he says, honey, in the original Hebrew, honey, don't think that you're going to get out of this one. Because you're going to die too. It is interesting that this lady doesn't naturally, instinctively do the superhero thing. But she gradually grows and develops as she is nudged. This is something that emerges rather than is necessarily natural. I'm glad about that. God doesn't call heroes. He makes them. I'm glad that the Christian life is about development and change and growth. Maybe, maybe there's a challenge in that for us. As Christians, are we still changing? Are we still growing? I've been thinking about that this week. How am I different? How is Jeff Lucas different from 10 years ago? How am I different from that 28-year-old back then? <laughs> Just checking, you're still there. Thank you. No, that's good. Apart from the kind of obvious, you know, deficiencies in hairline, how have, have I really changed? Am I really growing or am I just, am I on cruise control? Heroes are developed, brave people are developed. Thirdly, and this is really important, thirdly, bravery comes from belonging. Bravery comes from belonging, the power of committed community. Look at me at verse 8. This, here's the nudge from Mordecai. He told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. All right, now the news is out. And then verse 15. Then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Look at this, everybody. This is so important. Once it is known that Esther is a Jew... She immediately realizes that she does not want to walk this precarious pathway alone. She doesn't want to be a solo flyer. She says, all right then, 
I need everybody with me. I need everyone fasting. I'll fast. My maids will fast. We'll all fast. Let's do this thing together. We are called together. I sat and listened to the choir earlier this morning. And as they sang Hosanna, I couldn't resist a smile creeping onto my face. I tried to stifle it, but I just couldn't hold it back. So glad to know Jesus. And so glad in a lonely world to be part of the people of God. You're my people. So glad to be part of church. And I want to make a statement that might surprise some of us. Some of us need to quit attending Timberline Church. You say, what? I thought we were welcome here. Of course you are. Listen carefully to what I'm trying to say. You see, what can happen is we attend church, but we never really put roots down. We never get involved in small groups. We don't get involved in shouldering the privilege of giving. We don't invest. We come. We attend. And of course, that's fine for a while, while we're trying to figure out where we're supposed to be. But there comes a time when you quit attending and you invest and you become part of and say, hey, that's, that's my church family. I do not attend the Lucas family. Just attending, you know. No, it's, it's my family. And by the way, that level of investment has its pain as well. For Esther, that wasn't, that wasn't just a happy privilege because for her to immerse herself in that Jewish identity was costly. And that's true in church life. We're not always going to make each other happy. There are going to be things that irritate us about church. You know, I, I loved that song. I hated that song. It's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. Someone is sitting in my seat. The seat Jesus gave me. And there's pain involved. Let's press through that and build tenacious relationships of commitment whereby we are able to find strength from each other, the power of committed community. And maybe, maybe the response, one response to this message today is to say, hey, I'm going I'm to dig deeper and, and, and put down some roots here. It could well be something that God is asking of us. The last thing I want to say in this part of this message is that brave people are shaped by mentoring relationships. They're shaped by mentoring relationships, the power of personal investment. Look at verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows but that you have come to a role position for such a time as this. Now, just as an incidental thing here, it's possible that Mordecai's advice there wasn't perfect. Because he says to her, if you don't do it, someone else will. Now, because that's recorded doesn't mean that's divine truth. God inspired the recording of his statement. There's all kinds of things in the Bible, like, Ecclesiastes, where you shouldn't just preach directly as a quotation from the book. The words are recorded there, but vanity, vanity, all is vanity is not a God-inspired statement. It's the, it's the musings of a man on a life journey to try and figure out what's going on in the universe. 
And so because Mordecai said that, doesn't mean it was right, and the, the Holocaust of the last war would suggest that it isn't automatic that another Esther voice will rise up and speak. But in perfect, even though his mentoring may have been, Esther had someone speaking into her life. Who speaks into ours? Who do we give permission to, to tell the truth about us? Are we investing in the lives of others? Because you see, courage, bravery, it it doesn't just land on us from a great height. But often it can be nurtured and developed at others. We give permission to others to speak into our lives. Well, this sermon is going to continue now, but in a slightly different way. I am delighted, uh, thrilled to tell you that Ambassador Tony Hall and his wife Jan are with us this weekend. A great friend of Dick and Ruth Foth, and I'm going to invite Dick to introduce our guest. Would you welcome them both as they come to this platform? It is... uh... It's a joy to have Tony Hall with us here on the platform this morning. 1978, Tony Hall was elected to the House of Representatives of the United States Congress um, from the great state of Ohio, Dayton, Ohio's 3rd District. He served for 24 years in the United States Congress through the administrations of Presidents Carter, Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, and Bush the Younger. At the, uh, a few years ago, President Bush the younger, asked him, Tony, if he would go to Rome as an ambassador to the world for the issue of hunger and poor children around the world. Tony did that for four years. Hunger had captured his heart. I got to know Tony in September of 1993, but the first time I laid eyes on him was in April of that year. I was in New York City speaking, turned on the TV, and Paul Azan on CNN turned back from an interview by a remote from Washington saying, it's wonderful to meet a congressman who is both honest and has integrity. I pursued what the interview was about and why he ended up on TV. But I'm going to ask Tony, why did you end up on TV with Paul Azan on CNN? <laughs> well, as you said, my, my heart was really into feeding starving children, uh, hungry children both in my own country and starving children overseas because, you know, before the day's up today in the world, there'll be 25,000 people that will die from hunger, and most of which are children. So it was part of my heart, part of my passion, and the Congress that decided, because I was chairman of the Select Committee on Hunger, not because of that, but they had decided to eliminate my committee And among other things, and I said, don't do this because this is the only vehicle really in Washington or in Congress that really deals with this issue. But they said they were trying to save money, right? They were trying to save money, and they said, look. We'd like them to save money, Tony. I I know that. I know that. And and they were right. I mean, they should save money. And But the problem is sometimes Congress throws the baby out with the bathwater, and What they were doing is they were throwing the only vehicle that dealt with the issue. And so, you know, I said, don't do this because uh, this will, you know, this is the only thing. This will take away what the the conscience really of the Congress is all about. So, like, how much money are we talking about? Well, we're talking about $600,000. 
Let me just explain something. $600,000 in the United States Congress is pocket change. Okay, go ahead. What did, what did you want to do? Well, in my pre-Jesus days, I would have loved to have punched out a couple of congressmen. Yeah. See, now, Tony played football for Woody Hayes at Ohio State for a time, so he's able. Go ahead. <laughs> I was able 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I went home and talked to my wife, and I was really mad. I was thinking about quitting Congress, and I didn't know what to do. And my wife said, did you ever think about going on a fast? And I said, well, what do you mean? And we went and read Isaiah 58, which is an amazing chapter on fasting. And so we read it. And then what I did is I went and talked to my – I have a little prayer group. And I, I met with them, and I said, look, I'm thinking about going on a fast – and I'm just going to stop eating. I'm just going to drink water. And I'm going to announce this in the Congress. And what do you think? And they said, do it. So I felt pretty good. My wife was with me. My prayer partners are with me. And even though my staff and political people would never understand this, they're not with you. They're not with me. So I announced it uh, to the Congress, they're, you know, and the press was there. And I'm you know, and they covered it widely, and I'm thinking, well, this is the end of my career because I'm way over my head, and nobody will ever understand. A fast? Why would, you know, no congressman's ever fasted like this? You know, who's going to understand this? So you went back to Dayton to tell them? I went back to my district in Dayton, Ohio, to say, you know, I need to face the music and try to explain to them. And I just happened to have a, a speech that had been committed a month before to a very large Catholic high school. And I was trying to explain to them what I was doing. And they said, and they understood it right away. And they said, we're going to fast with you. The whole school, <laughs> the teachers, and the parents. Now, I fasted for 22 days without eating. They took a couple days. And it spread. It spread among thousands of high schools across the country, a couple hundred universities. And it just, it was phenomenal the way it was picked up by the press and written in tremendous ways, uh, not only the, the domestic press, but international press. And I, I was surprised myself. So then Mike Espy, Secretary of Agriculture, came to you at, at, at about day 21 or something and said? He said, we're going to do a series of summits uh, on hunger across the country, and we're going to get people to really focus on this. And it's because of your fast. And, and then... You know, we started a bunch of nonprofit organizations that really addressed the issue, which still exists today. But the thing that really got me to, to stop the fast after 22 days is the World Bank called me. And the World Bank is the largest bank in the world. It's a multi-billion dollar bank. It's, it's in Washington, D.C. They called me and they said, you know, we've been reading about the fast. We're excited about it. And we want to have a world conference on it. And would you come and we're going to invite ex-presidents like Jimmy Carter and the Secretary General of the U.N. and heads of state and come and then maybe we can get a commitment to really help on hunger. And? They committed $100 million to my fast. And so what did you, I mean, clearly you didn't buy an island in the Pacific. What did you do with it? <laughs> Well, that $100 million is now up to half a billion dollars. It's grown, and uh, it, went out mostly to, it went out mostly to children, but through their mothers, um, very poor women, 
in all over the world, uh, and for them to buy fruits and vegetables and for them to start small businesses so they could put some money in their pocket and, and um, you know, create jobs. So let me get this right. Some folks take away a measly 600 grand. You end up with 500 million helping kids around the world. But that's not the best thing that happened. What's, well, that's, what's the, that's what's not the, a bad return. No, no, that's a good return. Yeah, <laughs> I got that part. Like, what's the best thing that happened? Well, the best thing that happened was uh, my closeness to God or his closeness to me. I mean, he just almost like wrapped his arms around me, and I, I never felt so close to God in all my life. I mean, it's just, it, I was, it was such an intimate unbelievable relationship I had during that 22 days because all I did was stop eating. That's all I did, and he did everything. I mean, I didn't pass a bill. I didn't appropriate any money. I didn't have an organization. I just stopped eating, and he did it all. And But my relationship with him, and just it was so intimate, so beautiful, so loving. I, uh, I want you to know that this is a divine appointment this weekend. We planned a series about six months ago. And Dick Foth, as we looked at the series, he said, Tony Hall is going to be at the university. I think he could be with us that weekend. Do you see the synergy? Esther fasts and changes the world. Tony Hall fasts, lives bravely, changes the world. We have a divine appointment going on. What is it that God is calling us to do in terms of living bravely? That decision we need to face. That courageous stand that we need to take. Throughout this weekend, people have been responding to this, not just at one level, but at a huge range of levels. They are sensing God saying, live bravely with me. And So here's what we're going to do. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask... Ambassador Tony Hall to commission us to be brave. And we're going to pray. But if you're sensing in your life, sitting here in this building in the South Auditorium, if you're sensing God saying to you, be brave in that, I'll be with you. Make a, make a step. Make a choice. Whatever you feel. I'm going to invite you now without... I'm not going to draw this out, but without hesitation, if you are able and you want to respond to this, I'm going to live bravely in this situation. I'd like to ask you, if you're able, just to quietly stand to your feet now, please, wherever you are. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people have done this. And for each person, it's about a different set of circumstances, a different context. But I'm going to live bravely. Tony, as people are still standing, what would you say to them in this moment? Well, I would say a couple things. I'd say, one, you know, get together with your prayer partners, people that you pray with and trust and love, and, and ask them about this decision that you're going to make and be together on it. And I'd say the second thing is something that I... I asked Mother Teresa once. I had the chance to be with her six or seven times. And one time in Calcutta, I asked her the same thing. I was, I was trying to figure out something. And she said to me, 
Well, why don't you just do the thing that's in front of you? Which I thought was pretty good advice. And then the third thing, after you've done these two things, just do it. Because you're probably going to be over your head when you make this decision. And that's good. Because God, it's good to be over your head with God. That's the kind of situation that he likes. Dick, why don't you pray for us? Lord Jesus, here we are. You know us better than we know ourselves. But with courage we stand this morning. Wanting to be with you in what it is you're doing in our lives and around the world. Even as my heart quivers or our insides quiver because we don't know what what it means. We don't know the end from the beginning. Only you do. Help us to do what's in front of us and take the next step and walk with those who are committed to us as we make these kind of decisions. I pray that you'll wrap your arms around each person here this morning and let them know that you indeed are the captain of the Lord of hosts. And we're not doing this on our own, but you go before us in this situation. So thank you for doing that in advance. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't we express our huge appreciation to Ambassador Tony Hall. Thank you, Lord, for an appointment with you today. We pray that this moment will energize and galvanize us into brave living in the places where we find ourselves this week. Thank you that we go to those places with you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, Ambassador Tony Hall will be out in the foyer. If you'd like to go and say hi, shake his hand, feel free. He's there. Prayer team are here. If we can pray with you, we would love to. Watch out for that frozen ice, people. God bless you.